Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with fintech investor and frequent Wharton Fintech collaborator, Michael Sidgmore. Michael is a partner at Broadhaven Ventures and now runs a media platform called AltGo Mainstream, as well as Community and Capital with Reddit founder Alexis Ohanian. Michael is ultra deep in fintech and has really staked his career in the alt space over the last few years, having been interested in these platforms since his first job at Goldman's Principal Strategic Investments Group. He's worked as an investor, operator, advisor, angel, and more in this space. In today's episode, Michael and I discuss the evolution of the alts landscape over the last decade and the major trends that will drive it forward, his investment in and admiration for Republic and its CEO, the huge opportunity for wealth managers and alternative assets, the rise of the passion economy with products like sneakers, sports cards, and wine, his collaboration project with Mario Gabrielle of The Generalist in regards to Coinbase's direct listing, NFTs, and much, much more. This is a fun episode, and Michael is a fantastic guest. Let's get started. Hi, Michael, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It is fantastic having you on the show today, a frequent collaborator and supporter, and you were just on the show not too long ago. I'll be sure to link that episode in the description. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Michael, you've been a big investor in fintech over the last year and really seem to have been in it from the start of, you know, the new fintech age of the last decade. You've worn a lot of different hats and had a lot of stops across investing, operating, advising, angeling, and more, and have spent time in both London and the U.S. Can you walk us through your background and, you know, journey through fintech up until now at Broadhaven? Yeah, absolutely. So fintech hasn't been around for that long. It has been around longer than than I've been in fintech, that's for sure. And I think even people in the early 2000s would have said fintech was something they were doing, even if it wasn't referred to as fintech. But uh, but yes, I went to London for university, went to a school called London School of Economics, studied international relations and social policy, but also re- uh, ran the, the world's largest student conference on, on alternative investments, on hedge funds and private equity. Uh, so that was actually where I kind of learned about finance first and, and the alt space uh, as well. And then out of college, uh, first job was working at Goldman Sachs on the strategic investments team, investing into fintech companies. So it was a group that had a strategic mandate uh, housed within the securities division to mainly invest into capital markets infrastructure across the life cycle of a trade and help the firm kind of think through some of those strategic initiatives. So uh, work there in London, fantastic team. That team is now kind of branched out to do everything across fintech enterprise software. It's kind of combined with with GS growth now, but they're investing in companies like Carta and iCapital now. So we've seen them invest into many companies in the alt space. One quick question. Is this the Goldman PSI team, Principal Strategic Investments? Yes, it was the PSI team. Yes, know the team well. We will actually be having Rana Yared, former oh. head of GSPSI for New York and London, on uh, the so, show later this week. Rana was my was my boss, and we sat next to each other, worked closely <laughs> together. So uh, she's she's fantastic and and yeah. really a leader in the fintech space. I mean, everything she did at Goldman and now at Absolutely. Balderton. So people will will enjoy hearing her her speak. She's she's super smart. I'll be sure to tell her that you say hello. I'm very excited for yeah, that one. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, so so was at Goldman. And when I was there, was spending time thinking about how uh, one marketplace finance businesses could kind of dis- disrupt or disintermediate traditional financial services businesses. So this was really the time around where Lending Club and Zopa were starting to take hold in the fintech space. And then also spent time thinking about uh, the combination of social plus finance. So consumer social platforms like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're all impacting the way that us as younger people and millennials kind of growing up on a trading floor may think about interacting with their day-to-day life kind of online or digitally. So spend a lot of time thinking about how the rise of consumer social could impact how people thought about trading, gathering data, connecting with others as part of a community. So spent time thinking about those two things. And then got a call from one of the companies in the marketplace lending space called Mosaic that 
you know, wanted me to come and join as the first sales hire. They just raised a series A mosaic was effectively a lending club for solar. Uh, so we were crowdfunding capital, lending it to solar project developers, and then providing a fixed income like return to investors as a result. So joined as the first sales hire there. That business has kind of gone through an evolution to become a residential home solar loan originator, done about four and a half billion of home solar loan originations, and has raised over 300 million bucks of equity from Warburg Pincus. Uh, so really learned how to kind of build an investor network there, family offices, wealth managers, impact investors, given that solar was considered somewhat of an impact investment. So kind of spent a lot of time thinking about all of those things with regards to you know, how do investors think about a more, more alternative asset at the time, you know, investing into a, f a fixed income product with solar loans backing it was really something that was foreign to a lot of people. So had to spend a lot of time thinking about where and how that type of investment product should be should be fitting into an investor's portfolio, whether it's an individual high net worth or a wealth manager. Then I got a call from guy Lawrence Calcano, who's a partner at Goldman, was thinking about joining iCapital Network. He wanted to hear my thoughts on, on iCapital Network. They just spun out of Credit Suisse to become an independent company. And they were thinking about how to democratize access to private equity funds and alternative asset funds. And you know, he said, hey, w want you to come and you know, help us build the investor network, family office, RIA channel. So I joined iCapital uh, as pre-product employee, helped build the sales team with two others. Uh, and we really built the investor network from a blank sheet of paper. So thinking through what family offices, wealth managers could get on the platform, grew that to about two and a half billion of assets in a little under three years. Uh, and then BlackRock invested, uh, led a $25 million round and since then, you know, Lawrence and the iCapital team have done a tremendous job growing the business into one of the biggest companies in the alt space. It's now about 70 billion of assets, all sorts of kind of private investment funds from private equity, private debt, hedge funds, uh, and I'm sure there will be more over time, but really you know, enabling the intermediaries, the wealth management channel, so independent RIAs and private banks to have access to alternative assets at much lower minimums than traditional institutions, pensions, endowments, uh, and ultra high net worth families getting into the Warburg Pincuses or Silver Lakes of the world at $20 million minimums, iCapital's infrastructure really enabling that to go down to $100,000 minimums, and then they would kind of handle the pipes and plumbing from pre to post trade in an alternative investment, and have grown that business to, to what's kind of become a, a juggernaut in the space. And then, uh, you know, so did that for about three years. I love the building side of things, love the early stages. So I think iCapital got to about 60 people when I left and uh, met my now partner, Greg Phillips at Broadhaven, uh, Broadhaven Capital Partners. He built a market leading fintech investment bank with his partner on the banking side, Jerry Von Dolan, done about now at this point, about 75 billion of announced M&A transaction volume. So doing everything from you know, tons of deals with ICE, most recently the $11 billion um, acquisition of Ellie May to the $6 billion plus merger of Franklin Templeton, Leg Mason, and a number of others. Uh, and early stage fintech companies were coming to Broadhaven saying, hey, how can, you, uh, how can you help us? Can you invest in us? Can you help us raise money? Can you help us raise large uh, credit facilities? Can you help us connect to financial institutions? Because we have a number of ex-Goldman partners or senior bankers from, uh, from many leading investment banks as partners on the advisory side. And we were lucky to be able to be investors early on into companies like Moneyline, where we were one of the first investors in that business, Series A investors in Carta, early investors in Biocatch. And you know, as a result of that, Greg and I kind of came together and said, hey, you know, as the great funds like QED and Ribbit were starting to get bigger and move upstream, we thought there was an opportunity to be an early investor, one of the first or the first institutional investor into fintech companies, leverage the Broadhaven platform, and help help our companies grow and scale by getting their first enterprise customer with a bank as a partner, because we have that kind of connectivity or things like that. So now I've built out a portfolio of 20 early stage companies. We lead on about a fourth of our deals at seed stage, and then we'll follow and invest not just at seed, but because we can help these companies, we're finding we can do series A, B, and C checks in, in certain cases, and have done that kind of investing in fintech globally. So so we have six companies in LATAM, uh, soon to be seven, three in Asia, uh, one in the UK right now, and, and the rest in the US. So um, yeah, just want to continue to help 
early stage fintech companies grow and scale and <clears throat> and leverage the the platform and and backgrounds that we have to help them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, quite a background, really seeing all different sides of financial services, especially in Europe and iCapital, fantastic, fantastic company. Some amazing investments in the Broadhaven portfolio. Um, Moneyline just spacked, I believe, in the last few months, you know, in line with the, with the big trend of the year. So one thing that you've been focusing on in, as an investor is certainly no secret is the alternative investments landscape. And of course, I'm sure your work at iCapital kind of informed that decision. So you've started this, you know, kind of media brand called Alts Go Mainstream, just really talking about and exploring this entire thesis as a whole. But I want to understand kind of over the last six months, how has the alts landscape really evolved? Because I think it's definitely having its watershed moment. And how have, how have, what has shown you that alts have finally gone mainstream? You know, it's a great question. I'll answer this in two ways. So one from the company perspective and why we're seeing so many companies being created due to investor demand in many respects. And then from the VC perspective, because I think those two trends are, are things we've seen and they're separate, but also somewhat related. So from the company side, I think, you know, why are alts going mainstream and why does I, why did I now, after working in this space for a number of years, finally decide to say, okay, I think this is the time that alts are truly going mainstream. So I think it's a combination of a number of trends. So I think you, you finally have the technological innovation. So you have the infrastructure being built, whether it's with companies like iCapital providing the pipes and plumbing for intermediaries to enable people to invest into assets uh, that can now be democratized, like private equity funds. Um, same with a Carter or Forge doing that with direct deals, late stage private companies, or Republic doing that with early stage startups. And they've built the, the infrastructure to be able to do that. I think particularly when it comes to the uh, more traditional alts, so things like investing into startups uh, or late-stage companies, you have regulatory change as well. So companies like Republic have benefited from Reg CF, uh, which is a which is a regulatory change which has enabled investors, non-accredited investors, to access private companies uh, at incredibly low minimum. So Republic enables people to invest. $20 and above into these early stage companies where they previously would not have had that chance. Reg CF just increased its uh, limit on what a private company can raise from $1.07 million to $5 million. So I think that's a huge tailwind for the alt space, enabling people to access private companies. And I think that's also kind of dovetails with increased interest in the private markets because two things. One is you have a low rate environment. And these low interest rates look like they will persist for, for a longer period of time. But that means a flight to yield generative assets. And as a result of that, people are going to look to private markets as a way to generate returns. And kind of in tandem with that, value capture has really shifted to private markets particularly with, with startups or, or now late stage private companies. A lot of those companies are capturing or creating most of their value in private markets rather than public markets. Take Microsoft, for example, went public in the 80s. They went public, majority of their value capture has happened in the public markets. Take Facebook, for example, you still would generate meaningful returns in public markets, I think around 7, 8x or so from if you invested at IPO, but the majority of those returns would have happened in the private markets because private companies are staying private longer. Now we have different liquidity mechanisms, whether it's SPACs, whether it's direct listings and kind of secondary markets or these private market, private stock markets like Carta or Forge, which are enabling the liquidity to happen in private markets. But I think you have a number of trends that are enabling people to access private markets and those people have that demand. And then I think further to that, you have people really putting their money where the movement is. So, you know, I, I think Lior Avidar from Alt said this on, on one of my podcasts at Alco's Mainstream, but he calls this interest-based investing. I think that's a great term for this space is that people want to invest into things that they are interested in. Now, I think this pertains to 
more of the culture assets. So things like collectibles or trading cards, but even startups to some extent are things that are based on identity. People want to show that they are involved in this thing or they care about it, or it's something that they believe in. And I think many of these investment platforms are democratizing access to those assets and making it so that people can invest in those things. So I think that's really from the company side, there's you know five or six key trends that are really changing the way people are thinking about investing. And now the private markets have been unlocked to a broader swath of people. From the VC side, you know, why do I think alts are going mainstream? Uh, so if you think about the evolution in fintech, digital banking has been a battleground that's been fought over, right? The Monzos, the Stashes, the Money Lions, the Chimes of the World, that, that's a battle that has been fought over in the VC world. Companies have been created. Retail brokerage, same thing. Robinhood, Public, Trade Republic, etc. The next natural space is alternatives and the retailization or democratization of investing in all types of assets. So that's why I think you're starting to see more platforms crop up and more VC interest in this space. And then, you know, I think the other piece of this is just the cultural revolution. Like you have a, from a cultural perspective, people want to invest in things they're interested in. And that's why I think the time is now. Yeah, Michael, I completely agree. The writing is on the wall. Alternative assets are really going mainstream. The interest is there. The need for yield is there. And now, as you said, the technological on-ramps are finally arriving and there are regulatory changes helping them out along the way. I really love the opportunity as well for people to start investing in what they know and what they're passionate about. You know, investors aren't just boxed into traditional stocks and bonds anymore if they don't mm -hmm. want to be. And more sophisticated individuals can finally get exposure to high-end alternative assets. And from the company side, I think it's a huge win. You know, you're getting access to a lot more investors. And if you, you know, get a lot of everyday people investing in your company while it's still private, you get a great group of product ambassadors out of it. I think you're hitting on two key points there. So one is people's interest in a company or an asset and how how being able to invest into that asset and have dollars at work in that asset also then creates more consumption of that of that company's product or asset itself so i think and there's actually there's there's data that supports this that when people are invested in a stock they are more likely to consume from that company and they're less likely to consume from a competitor. So I think that's actually a very real phenomenon, and that 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 is driving this as well. And then the other piece I think you're hitting on, which is something that 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 I believe to be very important feature to this space, and you've seen it happen in crypto. I think you'll see it happen in the what I call the alt alt assets, so more of the culture assets, so collectibles, sneakers, trading cards, sports cards, which is these companies are the first place that people, particularly a younger generation, may go to learn about investing. So they become the on-ramp. So think about how many net new investors that that Coinbase has created because people now want an on-ramp into crypto. They're not necessarily the early adopters. They don't know how to store their store their crypto assets. Coinbase does that for them simply in an easy-to-use brokerage format that they might be used to from Robinhood. And those companies are now creating net new investors. I, I've talked about this when I've, I've talked about on-ramps, and I think you're bringing up a great point, which is people may for their first foray into investing may very well be through these types of platforms. It could be sneakers. We actually have an analyst at Broadhaven on the banking side. He's been, he's been spying and trading sneakers on StockX for the last four years. That's longer than he's been buying and selling stocks. So people may learn about investing in different ways because it's based on what they're interested in. And as a result of that, you may create net new investors out of this. And then I think what becomes really interesting is where do these platforms go? Do they expand? horizontally? Like, should a Coinbase get into traditional uh, traditional equities? Because they have more brokerage accounts than Charles Schwab or Fidelity, the 43 million brokerage customers. So, so it, it creates these really interesting questions of where these companies can go once they become this on-ramp for investors to access investing as a whole, and then maybe various asset classes over time. Yeah, and I mean, it's so, such great points. I completely agree. It's 
a space I'm so excited to see evolve over the coming years. And a lot of companies have good problems to have. Should they be going horizontal? Should they be going vertical? How are they going to continue to grow? So you are not only writing and thinking and talking about this space a lot, you are actively investing and backing some of the top companies in this space. I think my favorite talking about democratizing access to early stage investing and some people's first private investments is through the platform Republic. Um, and CEO Ken will be on the show in the coming weeks. So you invested in their Series A. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about why you believe in Republic, you know, kind of the 22nd on what the business does and why Ken is the right person to lead this company? Yeah, so gr- great question. Uh, we are super excited about Republic. We at Broadhaven invested in the Series A. Uh, I've actually been involved uh, since the since the first seed round as well. Um, so I've seen the evolution of what Ken and Republic have built over time, and really a very ambitious project at the time. Saying, "Hey, we're going to build this multi-asset private investment platform for all investors, non-accredited and accredited investors." And I think so. Kind of starting top down. So you know why you know why is Republic public so exciting to us and why do we believe in this mission so one is you know i truly believe that investing should be democratized there's no reason why people shouldn't have access to wealth creation in private markets now you know particularly from my experience at iCapital, I know that curation, quality control and diligence are absolutely critical you can't put people in bad bad investment opportunities. That's number one. Number two is um, you have to do a lot of education for people as well, right? People have to understand what it means to have illiquidity in their assets. They can't they can't get their money out right away like they can with a stock. They can trade in and out of it because there's liquidity in the market. Um, and they have to understand, you know, what it means to be in invested in an alternative asset. So I think those things are critical around kind of education, diligence, and curation. But if done properly, you know, people who can invest millions of dollars into companies should also have the same access to that wealth creation that individuals who are high net worths or institutions have as well. So, you know, I, I think from a just a theoretical perspective, those are things that we believe in and hope will happen over time in private markets. When it comes to Republic, they have you know tremendous traction, over a million customers. They have a number of high quality assets on their platform to date, both on the non-accredited side and the accredited side of their platform. They've also built a comprehensive platform, um, so across everything from startups to late stage private companies to crypto assets to real estate to video game financing to small business financing, and it really gives people diversified access into private markets. And we think over time, that's going to be kind of really important for people so that maybe they want something that's higher risk, but higher potential return, or maybe they want something that's more yield generative and isn't going to return 10x, but may return, um, you know, may, may return uh, enough relative to its risk. So I think we feel like that's important. And, and what Republic's done is they've built the infrastructure to scale across those assets and across the wealth spectrum from retail investors to accredited investors to even institutions. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised to see institutions using their platform over time, depending on what construct they're using it for um, or using the infrastructure. And they're able to do this globally. So I think from that perspective, all of those things got us really excited. And then uh, equally so was, you know, Ken and his background. So I think, you know, to build something in this space, it's helpful to have a legal background you know, to be able to create scalable infrastructure that enables both retail and non-accredited investors and accredited investors to invest into private markets, um, a startup background at the same time to balance that out, right? So you need to be able to understand how to move at startup speed, build a great user experience and product, and be able to acquire customers at scale, particularly if you're building a consumer-facing investment platform. Uh, and then, you know, the other pieces that are helpful are an institutional finance background to be able to understand the importance of being a fiduciary and and doing diligence and having high quality assets on your platform because you know if if there's one mistake, you may lose trust in your in, from your investors and that's that's really important and and a big responsibility that you have as a platform operator to do so. And then I think in in Republic's case, an understanding of crypto to be able to build something innovative like the the note token that Republic has, which is basically kind of in its simplest form a um, 
diversified exposure to all the assets on Republic, where a non-accredited investor can have exposure to that in a way where they may not be able to access those investments directly. Like They can't invest into a Reg D private offering if they're a non-accredited investor, but through the note token, they can benefit from the, uh, the returns that Republic generates on those assets through the note token. So, be able to kind of understand crypto and think innovatively about how to be inclusive to all investors. And Ken really has all of those experiences. He was the general counsel at AngelList, so he built the investment infrastructure for one of the most innovative companies in private markets at AngelList. He was the associate general counsel for a $40 billion asset manager called Permal. Uh, he also ran family office for uh, Canbar, which is a very large family office, I believe it has over 100 entities. So he understands what both individual and institutional investors need. And he's also been a lawyer by trade uh, who has the experience of building a fast growing consumer facing startup. So I think all those things make him a great person to run this business. And really, on top of that, he's mission driven. He truly believes in democratizing access for investors. And I think that's shown in, in what he's done in terms of building the platform and building their community in terms of having a number of venture partners who are from all industries, all parts of the country, a ton of diversity. And I think he really wants to create a more diverse ecosystem for the venture landscape. Yeah. I mean, you, you could not have laid the case out for Republic any better. I'm a huge believer in the company as well. If there are any allocations floating around in the next round, please do let me know if he's looking for any absolutely. other angels. I absolutely will. So Republic is obviously one of, you know, the best horses in the race, so to say, but there are a lot of other major platforms out there that are, you know, really emerging right now. Can you talk about how you're thinking about investing in this space at Broadhaven? You know, if I were to think about it myself, there's so many ways to attack it from, you know, the underlying assets themselves to fund of funds to platforms, companies, investors, and beyond. So I'll talk about some of the you know companies we're involved in and how we've thought about this because I think we've tried to think about this as getting a broad-based allocation across the ecosystem, both companies, funds. We can't invest into funds at Broadhaven, but we've done this outside to some extent. But we feel that investing in the assets themselves, whether it's crypto assets or sports cards, actually is a way to generate returns, just like many of the crypto many of the crypto funds were backed by venture funds early on, like a Union Square or Boost invested in Polychain, right? And and those have generated meaningful returns for those funds. So th there's kind of a we've tried to think about this um, a little bit more holistically. And then I'll also talk about some of the platforms that we're not involved in, maybe missed, wish wish we've been involved in, because I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on, particularly in the culture space. But Kind of the way we've thought about the alt space is kind of the evolution. So first you had kind of, you know, marketplace lending and kind of companies like Mosaic were early on there and I was involved there early. Same with iCapital. Then we thought, okay, the independent wealth channel is is growing faster clip than the wirehouse channel. So that means you know, wirehouse advisors from like UBS or Morgan Stanley, they're leaving and going independent. So that's a huge trend. There's, I believe, over $10 trillion of wealth in the US. So the independent channel is going to capture a lot of that. And that's going to be a huge driver of assets allocated to private equity funds and hedge funds. I think there's the average, the average advisor has around one to 2% allocated to alts on behalf of their clients, that is incredibly low when you think about it relative to the Yale or Harvard endowment. I mean, you can go look at the Penn endowment to probably 20-30% allocation to alts, right? And that's where they're generating meaningful amounts of returns, investing in top-tier private equity funds, top-tier hedge funds. So, when we kind of looked at some of the trends over the last four or five years, and luckily, you know, early iCapital employees were also able to invest, so, so was able to kind of see that from the early days as well, and just saw some of those trends over time. And I think the wealth channel is also going to start to get into some more of these alt assets that are more on the frontier, these alt-alt assets, whether they're crypto assets, there's on-ramps like Bitwise or Grayscale, uh, or even Coinbase that people are now able to access from a wealth advisory channel. So I think that's, you know, that that's a development that's happening. And then I think, you know, whether it's in the collectible or card space, you know, companies like Rally or Alt or Otis will be able to not just attract individual investors, but the high net worth channel as well. So we've kind of tried to think about 
where is each company an asset on this kind of frontier curve of the alt space? And you know that's why we decided to invest in Republic because we believe that non-accredited and accredited investors want access to alts broadly. Uh, certainly, startups—that's something they're comfortable with. So more traditional alt assets that now being democratized, but they're going to want exposure to other alts. You know, at Broadhaven, we were we were early investors in Carta, so seeing the transition from having every node on the private markets network captured to then becoming a an exchange and then kind of outside of that also involved with forge which is creating a private company stock market effectively uh, for late stage private companies uh, and then also invested in a company called alt which is basically the coinbase for trading cards or sports cards enabling people to it access sports cards as an asset class. It's being financialized from pre to post trade, so there's value and ability to understand and value a sports card, ability to trade on an exchange, and ability to custody those assets directly on alt. So believe that the infrastructure for some of these alt-alt assets are critical for the space to develop across the life cycle of a trade. And then was also involved, you know, relatively early on in, a, in an older line self-directed IRA business called Pensco, which had about 16 billion of assets. I know there are some great newer businesses out there like Rocket Dollar and Alto IRA, but I've seen the interest in in this space and and those types of companies being an on ramp as well. Um, you know, and then we've thought about this from investing into into funds as well. So, like I mentioned, we've invested in some of the crypto funds. You know, that that are investing directly in tokens can't do that through our fund, but we've decided to kind of create a side pocket almost and invest into those types of assets and then have done the same in the sports card space where we feel like there's managers who will be incredibly good at what they do because they're in this market and understand it innately well or super connected and they'll benefit from from being on the ground floor level of this market as well. So I, I think, you know, kind of we've tried to take a pretty comprehensive overview of the space. And then there are great companies that we have not worked with. You know, you mentioned like I think in the collectible space, the Rally Roads, the Otis's, the collectibles, I think are are creating something really, really important for this space, which is fractionalization. So fractionalization is a massive innovation for this space because it's unlocked retail participation at scale. And if you think about it as almost like the modern day investment bank for this space, they're IPOing these assets. It also creates a liquidity mechanism for card funds in the in the card space or collectibles funds or individuals who have these assets and want to sell them and then they can be fractionalized and offered to individual investors and you or I can buy them you know we can buy 10 shares of a Michael Jordan rookie card for 50 bucks each and still potentially see appreciation or benefit over time uh, in of the increase in that asset so I think that's a huge development for the space and I don't think this space would would accelerate nearly as quickly if it didn't have companies like the rallies, Otis's, and 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 collectibles, and then you know I think the the other piece of this that's fascinating and and you know I don't know if people are uh, thinking about this, but um, I actually think that companies like Carta and Forge have a huge opportunity that may still not be fully obvious yet to people, but it's that they actually have an opportunity to build a massive wealth management business. So they've created a lot of net new accredited investors through their liquidity mechanisms. So Carta through Carta X, Forge through their secondary stock market, effectively enabling early employees to sell their shares. They now have liquidity. They can invest across the spectrum of the, the companies on their platform and diversify away from their very valuable, but also, um, but also potentially dangerous high single stock holding, right? Because say something happens to that stock. So they're creating ways to enable people to become net new accredited investors. Forge acquired a self-directed IRA business that they also have, they have over a million accounts and I think 12 billion or so dollars in, in, in custody. And imagine what you can do with enabling people to continue invest in private markets through an IRA and the tax benefits that people accrue as a result of that. And for, I think Carta, you know, has this secondary exchange and they know what everybody's, you know, kind of private asset holdings are. Uh, they know what companies people work for. There's a huge opportunity to build a next generation wealth management firm that I think, you know, may not be fully appreciated or at this point, you know, overlooked to some extent. But I think that's a huge aspect of this is that to see the 
private markets world then bleed over into other asset classes, I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, a lot to react there. I think just a couple of things on the kind of future wealth manager platform. I think one one transaction that I kept an eye on was Morgan Stanley buying Solium Shareworks, kind of a similar idea to somebody trying to partner with you know, a company that manages all of these private stock holdings and, and, you know, employee shares to then hopefully get them into the ecosystem. Um, it's just such a great idea and a great transaction for Morgan Stanley. And then also, I, I still can't believe that stat that you had mentioned earlier, just one to 2% is the alternative allocation. I have to say for a lot, I think that's pretty high for certain people. You know, I'm surprised that people have any allocation whatsoever. And then on the other end, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe it's only 1%, not 5, 10, 20%. Yeah, well, it's it's you know interesting point there, right? I mean, I think some of the more sophisticated wealth managers who have ultra high net worth clients are probably closer to the five percent or so range. But majority of wealth managers who even have accredited investor clients are in the one to two percent range, and it's I think a, a number of things. One is they haven't had great access to private markets. Two is if you're not going to be in the best funds, it may not be worth being invested into. Alternatives or or alternatives funds, and then three is it's very hard for the wealth management community, as fiduciaries, to pick single assets. They'd much rather pick a basket of assets or stocks, uh, which is why many of these platforms have kind of catered to that community, the wealth management community, by creating multi-manager products. iCapital has created multi-manager feeder funds. Almost think of it like a fund of funds, uh, if you kind of explain it simply, as a way to for them to make a single allocation decision and get exposure to a diverse set of investors rather than have to make every single single stock or single allocation decision. So I, I think we'll see innovation there on many of these platforms where they're creating structured products or funds that enable investors to access the platforms on a more broad-based exposure level rather than on single assets, because I think that will unlock the institutional community, wealth managers and RIAs, investing into these platforms rather than picking single stocks. Now, individuals may want to go through the trouble of picking single assets because in part it's fun for them too, but from an allocation perspective as fiduciaries and also trying to manage their time of running a small business effectively. I mean, some of these, you know, multi-billion dollar RIAs only have 20, 30 full-time employees. They need to be prudent with their time. They may only have one CIO, and that CIO has to be thinking about everybody's portfolio. So uh, I think that's something we'll see happen over time as allocations increase. But there's a study by Fidelity that shows that you know the 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 wealth managers who have higher allocations to alternative investment funds tend to also have, on average, higher net worth clients. So there's, and there's probably some, is there correlation or causation? I'm sure that because they have higher net worth clients who can, you know, take a portion of their assets and put it into alternatives, and they're generally larger wealth managers, they're able to do that. But there's also a theory that if you offer access to alternative assets, which a company like iCapital is doing by providing that menu of private investment funds to the independent community, then you are more likely to attract higher net worth clients because they want access to alternative investments. So I think that's another really important and interesting takeaway is that the wealth management community needs to learn about the alt space. And that's everything from private funds, to late stage private companies, to startups, to crypto, to collectibles, because their clients may be asking them about it. Yeah, exactly, Michael. I completely agree. I think, you know, our generation, especially as it ages, you know, you're just not going to be wanting a 60-40 portfolio. I don't really know that many people in my generation that, you know, are really in tune with their finances and are get excited about a 60-40, you know, with access to different alternatives and crypto and passion economy items out there. I think the wealth managers that understand this and can easily, you know, ratchet up and down allocations in their menu and have these options available to their clients have a huge opportunity moving forward. And as you mentioned at scale, you know, a company that comes to mind is CapTrust, who it seems like is rolling up like an RIA a week, have a great opportunity to offer these options to advisors who wouldn't have them otherwise. I 
believe iCapital is is a partner of theirs, but iCapital, whether it's been Dynasty Financial, they have I think you know over fifty advisor teams and over fifty billion of AUM. Or Hightower was also a partner of iCapital's Focus Financial. Many of these RIA rollups, they're creating the tech stack and the ability for advisors to go independent, still get access to many of these private market investment opportunities. So companies like iCapital, Republic, et cetera, et cetera, I think same will happen in across the alt spectrum will you know end up looking to partner with many of these RIA rollups because that's where they can go to partner with the wealth management community and work with them. And I think even over time, venture funds, will do this as well. So I think there's some really interesting things happening. And I think there will be kind of some things going on in that world where you're creating access to the venture fund community, more emerging managers, and the wealth management community will will be kind of the other side of that equation where you need to provide that bridge to them. So I think that will happen over time as well as as all sorts of investors or invest investment platforms look for new sources of capital as the individual investor becomes like grows in size and scale and there's more net new accredited investors over time. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to say before we move forward, we've really, really hyped up the alternative space and alt alt space in this episode. A quick disclaimer for our listeners, none of this is investment advice. We are not registered financial advisors and so on. These are still assets that are often built on relatively nascent platforms with potentially tricky taxes, limited liquidity, lack of historical data for retail investors. So please invest and think about these at your own risk. Do your own due diligence. And, you know, on that point, I think just education in this space is critical. You know, I just hope that these platforms don't fully take the Robin Hood approach and are just jamming products, you know, <laughs> at their customers, especially as, you know, this new wave of alts hasn't really gone through a full market cycle. So last question, Michael, and a little bit of a pivot. I want to briefly touch on this really exciting project you took on with Mario Gabrielle and the generalist and his S1 club token for the Coinbase direct listing. I think it ties a lot of themes in this episode together. So for our listeners, what is the generalist and what was this token project? So Mario Gabrielle has built a a platform called the generalist. It's a great content platform. I think he has over 27,000 subscribers at this point. He does everything from longer, longer reads that kind of sum up a specific, uh, you know, topic of the week or company to startup ideas, requests for startups, 100 where people submit startup ideas and he posts the best five every week or so to the S one club, which is basically a, um, you know, bringing S1 research. So when a company is about to go public, they create an S1. It's about 250 to 270 or 300 pages uh, worth of of very dense materials on why the company is going public. Um, maybe not translated in plain English for those who are not as familiar with reading S1. So he's created this way to kind of recap these S1s and make it digestible. And I think it's a great uh, it's a great initiative because it helps people kind of to our point about like the gamification of investing. Investing should be fun. Uh, it's obviously very serious at the same time. And those who are professionals, like wealth managers, they have to go get their licenses. Uh, I had to get my license when I was at Goldman. I had to get my license when I was at iCapital and study for my seven and 63 and pass. And, and then, you know, like it's, it's, it's also very serious at the same time. But I do think there's some benefits to the gamification of investing and making it more fun for people because that will make people more invested in the markets. Now, you need to educate people. And I think Mario is doing a great job of balancing those two things. He uh, has created this really fun way of, of kind of sharing these S1s. He crowdsources the contributors. So, you know, I was one of, I think, 10 contributors or so, uh, a number of incredibly smart people in crypto in the VC world uh, who understand why, uh, you know, a bit about Coinbase, why this is an interesting business. And we did, we did a S1 teardown that Mario released yesterday, I believe, uh, on, on Sunday, uh, about the S1. 
And in, in association with that, he thought it would be cool to do a, to create a, basically an NFT of the artwork representing the, the work that we did. So he partnered with an artist, um, called, uh, called Jack Butcher and Jack is a prolific artist and decided to create, uh, interesting designs that are now NFT on the mirror platform. So, you know, I, I think, um, you know, just what this speaks to is really one, you know, what NFTs can do to uh, creator monetization and artist monetization as a way for them to generate, generate income from different sources. Um, now there are a lot of NFTs out there that who knows if they will have any sort of value over time, but what, what is interesting about the NFTs are that they are, uh, they are unique digital properties and where they are on the blockchain, they are immutable. So if you have the first, if you have the first crypto punk, which is crypto artwork, that may be very valuable to people. The Beeple NFT sold for $69 million. If somebody values that, then there may be value for that over time. Now, is that, you know, a crazy price for it, maybe. Um, and I think this gets to some of the things that we've talked about with, with productive versus speculative assets, where, you know, these are very much speculative assets. They, they are based on the price of what somebody else is willing to pay. And if people have an interest in those assets, then they will. I mean, art has been around for a long time. There is value associated with that based on the type of artwork and there's various ways to grade it. Same with sports cards. You can grade sports cards with PSA or Beckett and you can, you can look at that and say, okay, this card has a certain value because of its grade, because of the player associated with it, because of the rarity of the card or the scarcity. It's, is it a one of one card? There's only one of them in the world. That's harder to get than a one of 1000 card or a base card, which, you know, there may be hundreds in circulation at that grade of that population of card. So it's very much, uh, based on supply demand. Many of these speculative assets are, and they, you know, do they, do they deserve a, a place in people's portfolio? Yes. If they are, if people are interested in investing in those assets, yes. Now I think what's important, I'm actually writing a piece on this, which is that productive or speculative assets, it's really the way to think about this is in the context of portfolio construction. The ultra high net worth investor, they do have speculative assets in their portfolio because they're able to do so. They're investing in things like art. They may be investing in things like crypto. They're investing into memorabilia or sports cards and things like that. There are people who, there's somebody who bought the Mickey Mantle card for over $5 million recently, or a Luka Doncic card was sold for $4.6 million. That person obviously thinks there's some value in that asset. It's speculative. Somebody may pay $10 million for that asset. And I think there are people in the card space who believe that there will be $10 million card assets, but it could also go to zero if people don't believe in it. So I, I think that's, you know, it, 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 it has a place in people's portfolio. And I think the biggest thing about all of this in this kind of context of productive or speculative assets is that any investor, whether they're accredited or non-accredited should have the ability to construct a portfolio like the higher net worth investor can. Now it has to be sized appropriately and it has to be thought about in the context of overall portfolio construction. But that, that, that's where I think if people want to invest something in something they're interested in and they believe it has appreciative value, then they should invest a portion of their portfolio in that, that they can afford to lose. And if they're doing so, then I think this is the alt space is a net positive for this the kind of what's happening in the alt space and the democratization of access is a net positive for this space and for the for, for investors. And I think over time, it actually could change the way people think about investing because they may learn about investing through investing in these assets that interest them more than maybe a stock would. Got it. Well, Michael, that was fantastic. And just another great layout of the ecosystem. I do want to wrap up here, but before we close, you have to get through the rapid fire question round, which I know you're familiar with. We've got about 10 or so questions for you if you're ready. Fire away. All right. Fintech hero. Whew. Fintech hero. That is a, that is a tough one. So people, I don't know the Collison brothers, the Co the Collison brothers. I think what they've created at Stripe is incredible. They have, they have created a, they've created the, 
I think a lot Gil said this, the, the index for fintech. People feel like they have to use fintech and the infrastructure and the infrastructure that Stripe has built as the way, as the on-ramp for not just fintech, but really as the GDP of the internet. So I think what they've done is just absolutely incredible for the space. Awesome. Now, how about Robinhood, Coinbase, and Republic? What is the larger company in 10 years? I love Republic, but I'm going to have to go Coinbase. I think um, I think what Coinbase is doing, so um, Robinhood could get into crypto. Coinbase could, if they want to, get into traditional um into traditional equities as well. I think what Coinbase has done to create the on-ramp for the crypto economy is incredibly profound and really unlocks access for people to invest into crypto tokens or projects in ways that uh, they never have before. And and there's you know people all around the world who need to have access to sound money. I think to some extent, crypto provides that. Which crypto asset will it be? That's a question. But I think what Coinbase has done to create a business, whether it's $100 billion or not, is remarkable. Yeah. And you look at the currency situation in countries like Lebanon, Venezuela, et cetera. It makes you realize that there's a real problem. How about first fintech app that you ever downloaded? Oh, man. What's the first fintech app I downloaded? On my phone or or used uh, on my computer? Uh, you know, I think that was, I think it was Stash. All right. And you had, met, we have talked briefly about your running before. What is your marquee event and best time, if you're willing to share? Marathon. I've never run a marathon. I, I was a swimmer and a soccer player growing up. I had a few, I tried to play soccer in the UK, had a few hip surgeries. So I've never, I've never run a marathon. I I've done a few 10 Ks. I think I did, I think I did under like around 50 or 51 minutes in a 10 K in San Francisco, which had a lot of Hills. I will say that. And then I, I do open water swimming as well. And, uh, my, at this point I'm, a, I'm very much a retired athlete relative to, to what I was before, but I came very close to, uh, beating Ian Crocker in the open water. So I did open water swim in the grand Cayman and was, I think a few, a few places behind him. He was now to be fair, Ian, he's a gold medalist, uh, 50 butter, 50 meter butterfly. Um, so he's more of a short distance guy, but, um, but I came close in a, it was a, what was it? Was it, it was like a two or three mile open water swim. Um, but uh, I came close. So I was, I was pretty happy with that. That's awesome. Okay. And final question. What is your first big post COVID vacation? Everyone's vaccinated. World is back to normal. Well, if, um, so I am hoping that two weddings happen this year. So my cousin's wedding in Italy, that will be, if that happens, uh, we'll see August is really cutting it close. So I am hopeful that that happens because he was supposed to have it last year. And for him and his fiance would love, would love for them to be able to have their wedding and would love to be able to celebrate with them. And then, uh, one of my best friends is getting married in Hawaii in, in November. Uh, and he's part Hawaiian. So he's going to be, be home with his family. And I think ho- hopefully that will happen. Um, so but I, either of those, Awesome. Well, Michael, it was fantastic having you on today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I want to thank you again for coming on. This was great. Very timely episode. Excited to get it out to our audience. Awesome. No, th- thanks for having me, Ryan. You guys continue to put out great content. And, uh, and yeah, I love talking about the space with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.